0: I'm Meg Wallitzer. On this Selected Shorts, characters are defined by the stories they tell. B.J. Novak, Edgar Carrot, and Lori Moore let us in on their secrets, and I get to sing a Leonard Cohen cover with Lori Moore. Well, don't worry, only about 10 seconds of one. It'll be like a bridged literary karaoke. It'll be over before you know it, and there's no cover charge, no drink minimum, no bathroom with a really sticky floor. Stay with me. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Storytelling is a natural human impulse, shaping everything from great novels to some Twitter posts. When I start writing something new, I want to be entirely free to take it wherever it goes. But I also don't want to be boring, either to myself or my phantom reader. I know that he or she is free to put the book down, either casually or in disgust. But what actually keeps a person reading? I think there's a question the reader always asks of a story. Why are you telling me this? And with a little luck, the answer soon becomes obvious. On this show, three very different takes on narrative. A prankish skit, a playful and tender investigation of creating with words, and a fraught social encounter between two characters who don't get each other's stories. The author Laurie Moore, a storyteller we treasure, joins me later in the show. Let's begin with a story by the humorist B.J. Novak, great writer Steele. You know this old line, but Novak takes it literally. Novak's best known for his work on The Office, but you've also maybe seen him in Inglorious Bastards or Saving Mr. Banks. And he's published the collection One More Thing, Stories and Other Stories, from which this piece comes... For this quick read, we partnered him with another frequently funny guy, the actor Asif Mandvi, a former Daily Show correspondent who's also been seen in shows like The Brink and currently on the supernatural series Evil. Here are Novak and Mandvi to perform a little grand theft writing with great writer's steel.
1: What if they have an alarm? I told you. We're gonna get out too fast for that to matter. I don't know. Something feels off. Hey, nothing's off, okay? It's what we're doing. Remember what the book said? Good writers borrow, great
0: writers steal. Right. You wanna be a great writer? Yeah.
1: Yeah, are you sure? Because you don't sound sure. I wanna be a great writer. Yeah, you wanna be a great writer? Yes, I wanna be a great writer. I want to be a legend. Damn right. We're both going to be legends. Kerouac, Burroughs, Bukowski. They probably stole all kinds of stuff. Brady Stinellis
0: probably still robs places.
1: Yeah. Liquor stores probably. Who knows? Probably. I pictured maybe Banks. The point is, we never hear about any of it. Right. Right. Right?
2: Right. Ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. Neither of them ever got anything published. In fact, those who read their writing went so far as to say that they misunderstood literature on an unusually fundamental level. (laughs) But after a few years, they got to be pretty good thieves.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Well, that was quick. Asif Manvi and B.J. Novak performed Novak's Great Writer's Steal. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Whatever their story was, it wasn't going to get them published. B.J. Novak is often slap-your-knee funny, but Israeli writer Edgar Carrot, a short's favorite, is slyly funny. In collections such as Suddenly a Knock on the Door and Fly Already, his characters never meet you head-on. They slip sideways into other worlds. As in creative writing, a husband urges his wife to take a writing class for therapeutic reasons, only to feel both dazzled and challenged by her powers of imagination. Our reader is Alex Karpovsky, who's appeared on screen in Girls and Homecoming and is also a screenwriter and director, so sort of perfect for creative writing.
2: The first story Maya wrote was about a world in which people split themselves in two instead of reproducing. In that world, every person could, at any given moment, turn into two beings, each one half his or her age. Some chose to do this when they were young. For instance, an 18-year-old might split into two nine-year-olds. Others would wait until they'd established themselves professionally, financially, and go for it only in middle age. The heroine of Maya's story was splitless. She had reached the age of 80 and, despite constant social pressure, insisted on not splitting. At the end of the story, she died. (laughs) It was a good story, except for the ending. Aviad thought there was something depressing about that part. Depressing and predictable. But Maya, in the writing workshop she had signed up for, actually got a lot of compliments on the ending. The instructor, who's supposed to be this well-known writer, even though Aviad had never heard of him, told her that there was something soul-piercing about the banality of the ending or some such piece of crap. (laughs) Aviad saw how happy that compliment made Maya. She was very excited when she told him about it. She recited what the writer had said to her the way people recite a verse from the Bible. And Aviad, who had originally tried to suggest a different ending, backpedaled and said that it was all a matter of taste and that he really didn't understand much about it. It had been her mother's idea that she should go to a creative writing workshop. She said that a friend's daughter had attended one and enjoyed it very much. Aviad also thought that it'd be a good idea for Maya to get out more, to do something with herself. He could always bury himself in work, but since the miscarriage, she never left the house. Whenever he came home, he found her in the living room, sitting up straight on the couch, not reading, not watching TV, not even crying. When Maya hesitated about the course, Aviad knew how to persuade her. Go once, give it a try. The way a kid goes to day camp, he said. Later, he realized that he had been a little insensitive of him to use a child as an example, after what they'd been through, two months before. But Maya actually smiled and said that day camp might be just what she needed. The second story she wrote was about a world in which you could only see the people you loved. The protagonist was a married man in love with his wife. One day, his wife walked right into him in the hallway and the glass she was holding shattered on the floor. A few days later, she sat down on him as he was dozing in an armchair. Both times, she wriggled out of it with an excuse. She had something else in her mind. She hadn't been looking when she sat down. But the husband started to suspect that she didn't love him anymore. To test his theory, he decided to do something drastic. He shaved off the left side of his mustache. He came home with half a mustache clutching a bouquet of anemones. His wife thanked him for the flowers and smiled. He could sense her groping the air as she tried to give him a kiss. Maya called the story Half a Mustache and told Aviad that when she'd read it out loud in the workshop, some people had cried. Aviad said, Wow, and kissed her on the forehead. That night, they fought about some stupid little thing. She'd forgotten to pass on a message or something like that, and he yelled at her. He was to blame, and in the end, he apologized. I had a hellish day at work, he said, and stroked her leg, trying to make up for his outburst. Do you forgive me? She forgave him. The workshop instructor had published a novel and a collection of short stories. Neither had been much of a success, but they'd had a few good reviews. At least, that's what the saleswoman at the bookstore near Aviad's office had told them. The novel was thick 624 pages. Aviad bought the book of short stories. He kept it in his desk and tried to read a little during lunch breaks. Each story in the collection took place in a different foreign country. It was kind of a gimmick. The blurb on the back cover said that the writer had worked for years as a tour guide in Cuba and Africa and that his travels had influenced his writing. There was also a small black and white photograph. In it, he had the kind of smug smile of someone who feels lucky to be who he is. The writer had told Maya that when the workshop was over, he'd send her stories to his editor. And although she shouldn't get her hopes up, publishers these days were desperate for new talent. Her third story started out funny. It was about a woman who gave birth to a cat. The hero of the story was the husband, who suspected that the cat wasn't his. (laughs) Uh, A fat ginger tomcat that slept on the lid of the dumpster right below the window of the couple's bedroom gave the husband a condescending look every time he went downstairs to throw out the garbage. In the end, there was a violent clash between the husband and the cat. The husband threw a stone at the cat, which countered with bites and scratches. The injured husband, his wife, and the kitten she was breastfeeding went to the clinic for him to get a rabies shot. He was humiliated and in pain, but tried not to cry while they were waiting. The kitten, sensing his suffering, uncurled itself from his mother's embrace, went over to him and licked his face tenderly, offering a consoling meow. (laughs) Did you hear that? The mother asked emotionally. He said, daddy. (laughs) At that point, the husband could no longer hold back his tears. And when Aviad read that passage, she had to try hard not to cry too. Maya said that she'd started writing the story even before she knew she was pregnant again. Isn't it weird? she asked, how my brain didn't know yet, but my subconscious did. The next Tuesday, when Aviad was supposed to pick her up after the workshop, he arrived half an hour early, parked his car on the lot, and went to find her. Maya was surprised to see him in the classroom, and he insisted that she introduce him to the writer. The writer reeked of body lotion. He shook Aviad's hand limply and told him that if Maya had chosen him for a husband, he must be a very special person. Three weeks later, Aviad signed up for a beginner's creative writing class. He didn't say anything about it to Maya, and to be on the safe side, he told the secretary that if he had any calls from home, she should say that he was having an important meeting and couldn't be disturbed. The other members of the class were mostly elderly women who gave him dirty looks. The thin young instructor wore a headscarf, and the women in the class gossiped about her, saying that she lived in a settlement in the occupied territories and had cancer. She asked everyone to do an exercise in automatic writing. Write whatever comes into your head, she said. Don't think, just write. Aviad tried to stop thinking. It was very hard. The old woman around him wrote with nervous speed, like students racing to finish an exam before the teacher tells them to put their pens down. And after a few minutes, he began writing too. The story he wrote was about a fish that was swimming happily along in the sea when a wicked witch turned it into a man. The fish couldn't come to terms with this transformation and decided to chase down the Wicked Witch and make her turn him back into a fish. Since he was an especially quick and enterprising fish, he managed to get married while he was pursuing her and even to establish a small company that imported plastic products from the Far East. <laughs> with the help of the enormous knowledge he had gained as a fish who had crossed the Seven Seas, the company began to thrive and even went public. Meanwhile, the Wicked Witch, was a little tired after all her years of wickedness, decided to find all the people and creatures she'd cast spells on, apologize to them, and restore them to their natural state. At one point, she even went to see the fish she had turned into a man. The fish's secretary asked her to wait until he'd finished the satellite meeting with his partners in Taiwan. (laughs) At that stage in his life, the fish could hardly remember that he was, in fact, a fish and his company now controlled half the world. (laughs) The witch waited several hours, but when she saw that the meeting wouldn't be ending anytime soon, she climbed onto her broom and flew off. The fish kept doing better and better until one day when he was really old, he looked out the window of one of the dozens of huge shoreline buildings he'd purchased in a very smart real estate deal and saw the sea. And suddenly he remembered that he was a fish a very rich fish who controlled many subsidiary companies (laughs) that were traded on stock markets around the world, but still fish. A fish who for years had not tasted the salt of the sea. When the instructor saw that Aviat had put down his pen, she gave him an inquiring look. I don't have an ending, he whispered apologetically, keeping his voice down so as not to disturb the old ladies who were still writing. Thanks.
0: Alex Karpovsky performed Edgar Carrot's creative writing. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This story is like a snack pack, one piece of fiction with a quartet of quirky stories packed inside. When we return, a battle of wits and words at a dinner party. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Walitzer. This show's actually a bit meta, stories about the act of creating a story. If you missed the first half, no worries. Just go to our website, SelectedShorts.org. While there, just click the Subscribe to Podcast button, and you'll find us on all your favorite platforms. On this show, we offer up stories about storytelling and about finding out who people are through their stories, whether these are narratives we seek out or ways in which writers investigate character. You know how you might suddenly feel like calling a particular friend? Without even being conscious of it, you know that that person will make you feel a certain way. It's the same with characters. We want to get to know them so deeply that we actually feel a little different when we're in their presence. With that in mind, we were happy to include something from my friend, the elegantly mordant Laurie Moore, whose books include Like Life, Self-Help, Bark, and the irresistibly titled Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? In Foes, first published in The Guardian, a mid-list historical writer who's beginning to feel his age and doubt his talent winds up in a duel of words and wits with a woman at a charity dinner with
1: his wife as the referee. I love to write dinner party stories. It's like a play, you know, you push the people together and then tense conversation ensues. That was author Laurie Moore letting you in on her process. We'll
0: hear more from her at the end of the program. We needed a strong pair for foes, and we were able to recruit Joan Allen and Kyle MacLachlan. Allen's many theater and film credits include Burn This, The Heidi Chronicles, and Room. Kyle MacLachlan reached cult status as the guileless investigator in David Lynch's Twin Peaks. He's also had a strong presence in series such as Sex and the City and How I Met Your Mother. He's good at capturing baffled males, and he's certainly a bit baffled here. Here's McLaughlin and Joan Allen in Laurie Moore's Foes.
3: Bake McCurdy was no stranger to the parasitic mixings of art and commerce, literature and the rich. Hedge funds and haiku, he'd exclaimed to his wife Susie. And yet such mixings seemed never to lose their swift, stark capacity to appall. The hustle for money met the hustle for virtue and everyone washed their hands in one another. It was a common enough thing, though was there ever enough soap to cut the grease?
4: That's what your lemon is for, Susie would say, pointing at the twist in the martini he was not supposed to drink.
3: Still, now and again, looking up between the crab meat cocktail and the palate cleansing sorbet sprinkled with fennel pollen dust, he felt shocked by the whole thing.
4: It's symbiosis. Said Susie as they were getting dressed to go Think of it being like the krill That grooms and sees for the rock shrimp Or that bird who picks out the bugs from the rhino hide
3: Ah, so we're the seeing-eye krill Yes We're the ox-peckers
4: Well, I wasn't going to say that, she said
3: A lot in this world has to do with bugs, said Bake.
4: Food, she said. A lot has to do with grooming and food. Are you wearing that? What's wrong with it? Lose the, um, what are those? Suspenders. (laughs) They're red.
3: Okay. Okay. (laughs) But, you know, I never do that to you. Ah,
4: I'm the sighted krill. She smoothed his hair, which had recently become a weird pom-pom of silver and maize.
3: And I'm the blind boy?
4: Mm, Well, I wasn't going to say that either.
3: You look good. Whatever it is you're wearing. See? (laughs) See? I say nice things to you.
4: It's a sarong. She tugged it up a little.
3: He ripped off the suspenders. Well, here, you may need these. (laughs)
4: They were staying at a Georgetown B&B to save a little money, a townhouse where the owner couple left warm cookies at everyone's door at night to compensate for their loud toddler who by 6 a.m. was barking orders and pointing at her mother to fetch this toy or that. After a day of sightseeing, all those museums prepaid with income taxes, It was like being philanthropists come to investigate the look of their own money. Susie and Bake were already tired. They had come back early for a pre-dinner lie-down. When they were ready to leave for the evening, they hailed a cab and recited the fundraiser's address to the cabbie who nodded and said ominously, oh yes.
3: Never mind good taste. Here at this gala, even the usual diaphanous veneer of seemliness had been tossed to the trade winds. The fundraiser for Lunar Line's literary journal, 3LJ as it was known to its readers and contributors, the magazine as it was known to its staff, as if there were no others, it was being held in a bank.
4: Or at least a former bank one which had recently gone under, and which now sold squid ink or beneath its vaulted ceilings, and martinis and grenache from its former teller stations. Wood and marble were preserved and buffed, glass barriers removed. In the evening light, the place was golden. It was
3: cute. So what if subtle boundaries of occasion and transaction had been given up on So what if this were a mausoleum of greed, now danced in by all? He and Susie had been invited. The passive voice could always be used to obscure the blame. (laughs) The invitation, however, to this D.C. fundraiser seemed to bake a bit of a fluke. Since Man on a Quarter, Man on a Horse Bakes Ill-Selling Biography of George Washington, In a year where everyone was obsessed with Lincoln, even the efficiently conflated President's Day had failed to help his book sales. It would appear to fit him to neither category of guest. But
4: Lunar Lines, whose offices were in Washington, had excerpted a portion of it, as if in celebration of their town, and so Bake was sent two free dinner tickets. He would have to rub elbows and charm the other guests, The rich, the magazine's donors, who would be paying $500 a plate. Could he manage that? Could he be the court jester, the town clown, the token writer at the table?
3: Absolutely, he lied. (laughs) Why had he come? Though it was named after the man he had devoted years of affectionate thought and research to, he had never liked this city, an ostentatious, company town built on a marsh, a mammoth, pompous, chit-ridden motor vehicle department run by gladiators, high-level clerks on the take, their heads full of unsound sound bites and falsified recall, yes, how are you? It's been a while, not even in, it's been a long time because who knew? Perhaps it hadn't been. Better just to say, neutrally, it's been a while, and no one could argue. He clung
4: to Susie. At least the wine is good, she said. They weren't really mingling. They were doing something that was more like a stiff list, a drift and sway. The acoustics made it impossible to speak normally, and so they found themselves shouting inanities, then just falling mute. The noise of the place was deafening as a sea, and the booming hardiness of others seemed to destroy all possibility of happiness for themselves.
3: Soon we'll have to find our table, Mm. he shouted. Glancing out at the vast room filled with a hundred white cloth circles flickering with candlelight, small vases of heather sprigs that could easily catch fire had been placed in the center as well. (laughs) So we're little chrome card holders declaring the table numbers. What number are we? Susie pulled the tag
4: from what he facetiously called her darling little bag and then shoved it back in. 79, she said. I hope it's near the restroom.
3: Ooh, I hope it's near the exit.
4: Let's make a dash for it now.
3: Let's scream fire.
4: Let's fake heart attacks.
3: Do you have any pot?
4: (laughs) We flew here. Remember, I wouldn't bring pot on an airplane.
3: Wow. We're losing our sense of adventure in all things.
4: This is an adventure.
3: You see, that's what I mean.
4: At the ringing of a small bell, everyone began to sit, not just the ones in wheelchairs.
3: Bake let Susie lead as they wended their way, drinks in hand, between the dozens of tables that were between them and number 79. They were the first ones there, and when he looked at the place cards, he saw that someone had placed Susie far away from him, and he quickly switched the seating arrangements and placed her next to him on his left. "'I didn't come this far not to sit next to you,' he said, Mm -hmm. and she smiled wanly, squeezing his upper arm."
4: These kinds of gestures were necessary since they had not had sex in six months.
3: I'm 60 and I'm on antidepressants, said Bake when Susie had once, why only once, complained. I'm lucky my penis hasn't dropped off.
4: They remained standing by their seats, waiting for their table to fill up. Soon, a young investor couple from Wall Street who had not yet lost their jobs Then a sculptor and her son, then an editorial assistant from 3LJ.
3: Then last, to claim the seat to his right, a brisk young Asian woman in tapping (coughs) heels. She thrust her hand out to greet him. Her nails were long and painted white. Perhaps they were fake. Susie would know, though Susie was now sitting down and talking to the sculptor next to her.
4: I'm Linda Santo, the woman to his right said, smiling. Her hair was black and shiny and long enough so that with a toss of the head, she could swing it back behind her shoulder and short enough that it would fall quickly back forward again. She was wearing a navy blue satin dress and a string of pearls. The red shawl she had wrapped over her shoulders, she now placed on the back of her seat.
3: He felt a small stirring in him. He'd always been attracted to Asian women, though he knew he mustn't ever mention this to Susie, or to anyone, really. "'I'm Baker McCurdy,' he said, shaking her hand.
4: "'Baker?' she repeated.
3: "'I usually go by bake. He accidentally gave her a wink. One had to be very stable to wink at a person and not frighten them.'
4: Bake. She looked a little horrified If one could be horrified only a little
3: She was somehow aghast And so he pulled out her chair to show her that he was harmless No sooner were they all seated than appetizers zoomed in Tomatoes stuffed with avocados and avocados with tomatoes It was a witticism With a Christmassy look Though Christmas was a long way away.
4: So, where are all the writers? Linda Santo asked him while looking over both her shoulders. The shiny hair flew. I was told there would be writers here.
3: You're not a writer?
4: No, I'm an evil lobbyist, she said, grinning slightly. Are you a writer?
3: Well, in a manner of speaking, I suppose. Oh, said. you are. Mm. She brightened, what
4: might you have written? Mm
3: -hmm. What might I have written, or what did I actually write?
4: Um, Either one
3: He cleared his throat I've written several biographies Boy George, King George, and now George Washington (laughs) That's my most recent A biography of George Washington A captivating man, really, with a tremendous knack for real estate. And a peevishness about being overlooked for promotion when he served in the British Army. (laughs) The things that will start a war. (laughs) And I'm not like his other biographers. I don't rule out his being gay. Uh,
4: You're a biographer of George's, she said, nodding and unmoved.
3: Clearly, she had been hoping for Don DeLello. This provoked him. He veered off into a demented heat. Actually, I've won the Nobel Prize. Really? Yes, but, well, I won it during a year when the media weren't paying a lot of attention. (laughs) So it kind of got lost in the shuffle. I won right after 9-11, in the shadow of 9-11. Actually, I won right as the second tower was being hit
4: She scowled, the Nobel Prize for
3: Literature Oh, for Literature, no, 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 no not for Literature His penis now sat soft as a shrinking peach in his pants
4: Susie leaned in on his left and spoke across Bake's plate to Linda. Is he bothering you? (laughs) If he bothers you, you just let me know. I'm Susie. She pulled her hand out of her lap, and the two women shook hands over his avocado.
3: He could see Linda's nails were fake, or if not fake, something. They resembled talons. This is Linda, said Bake. She's an evil lobbyist.
4: Oh, really? (laughs) Susie said good-naturedly, but soon the sculptor was tapping her on the arm, and she had to turn back and be introduced to the sculptor's son.
3: Is it hard being a lobbyist?
4: Oh, it's interesting. She said it's hard work, but interesting.
3: That's the best kind.
4: Uh, uh, Where are you from? Chicago. Oh, really? (laughs) She said, as if he had announced his close connection to Al Capone.
3: Anyone he ever mentioned Chicago to always brought up Capone. Either Capone or the Cubs.
4: So, uh, you know the presidential candidate for the Democrats?
3: Bracco. Oh, love him. He's the great new thing. Honest, practical, one of us. He's a writer himself. I wonder if he's here. Now, Bake, as if in mimicry, turned around and looked over both his shoulders. Now, he's
4: probably out with his terrorist friends.
3: (laughs) He has terrorist friends? Bake himself had a terrorist friend. (laughs) Midwesterners loved their terrorist friends, who were usually balding, boring citizens, still mythically dining out on the sins of their long youth. They never actually killed anyone, at least not intentionally. They aged and fattened in the ordinary fashion. They were rehabilitated, they served their time. And if they didn't, because of infuriating class privilege that allowed them to just go on as if nothing had ever happened, well, they raised each other's children and got advanced degrees and gave back to society in other ways, he supposed. He didn't really know much about Chicago. He was actually from Michigan. (laughs) But when going anywhere, he always flew out of O'Hare.
4: Um, yeah. That bomber who tried to blow up federal buildings right here in this town.
3: When Baracco was a kid? That 60s guy? Baracko doesn't even like the 60s. He thinks they're Mm. so 60s. The 60s took his mother on some wild ride away from him.
4: Mm, The 60s made him, my friend.
3: Bake looked at her more closely. Now he could see that she wasn't Asian. She had simply had some kind of plastic surgery. Skin was stretched and draped strangely around her eyes. A botched eye job, a bad facelift, an acid peel, whatever it was... Susie would know exactly. Well, he was a young child.
4: So he says.
3: What, is there some dispute about his age?
4: Where is his birth certificate?
3: I have no idea, said Bake. I have no idea where my own is.
4: Here is my real problem. This country was founded by and continues to be held together by people who have worked very hard to get where they are."
3: Bake shrugged and wagged his head around. Now would not be the time to speak of timing. It would be unlucky to speak of luck. Could he speak of people having things they didn't deserve in a room full of such people? (laughs) She
4: continued, "'And if you don't understand that, my friend, then we cannot continue this conversation.
3: The sudden way in which the whole possibility of communication was now on the line startled him. I see you've researched the founding of this country. Mm -hmm. He would look for common ground.
4: I watched John Adams on HBO. (laughs) Every single episode.
3: Wasn't the guy who played George Washington uncanny? I mean, I did think Jefferson looked distractingly like Martin Amos. I wonder if Martin is here. He looked over his shoulders again. He needed Martin Amos to get over here right now and help him.
4: Linda looked at him fiercely. It was a great miniseries and a great reminder of the founding principles of our nation.
3: Mm. Did you know George Washington was afraid of being buried alive?
4: I didn't know about that.
3: The guy scarcely had a fear except for that one. Mm. You knew he freed his slaves. Mm Mm-hmm. He was eating, and he was not. This would not work to his advantage. Nonetheless, he went on. Talk about people who've toiled hard in this country, and yet, not to argue with your thesis too much, those slaves didn't all get ahead.
4: Your man, Barama, my friend, would not even be in the running if he wasn't black.
3: Now all appetite left him entirely. The food on his plate, whatever it was, splotches of taupe dollops of orange went abstract like a painting. His blood pressure flew up. He could feel the pulsing twitch in his temple. You know, I never thought about it before, but you're right. Being black really is the fastest, easiest way to get to the White House. She said nothing, so he added, unless you're going by cab and then, well, it could slow you down a little.
4: Chewing, Linda looked at him a flash in her eyes. She swallowed. Well, supposedly we've already had a black president. We have? Yes! A Nobel Prize winning author said so.
3: Hey, take it firsthand from me. Don't believe everything that a Nobel Prize winner tells you. I don't think a black president ever gets to become president when his nightclub singer mistress is holding press conferences during the campaign. That would be a white president. Please pass the salt. The shaker appeared before him. He shook some salt around on his plate and stared at
4: it. Linda made a stern, effortful smile, struggling to cut something with her knife.
3: Was it meat? Was it poultry? It was consoling to think that, for a change, the rich had had to pay a pretty penny for their chicken while his was free. But it was not consoling enough.
4: If you don't think I, as a woman, know a thing or two about prejudice, You would be sadly mistaken, Lily said.
3: It's not that easy being a man, either, said Bake. There's all that cash you have to spend on porno, and believe me, (laughs) that's money you never get back. (laughs) He then retreated, turned to his left towards Susie, and leaned in. Help me, he whispered in her ear.
4: Are you charming the patron's?
3: I fear some object may be thrown.
4: You're supposed to charm the patrons. I know,
3: I know, I was trying to, I swear, but she's one of those who keeps referring to Brocco as Brahma. He had violated most of Susie's dinner talk rules already. No politics, no religion, no portfolio tips. And unless you see the head crowning, never look at a woman's stomach and ask if she's pregnant. <laughs> He had learned all these the hard way But in a year like this one, there was no staying away from certain topics
4: Get back there, Susie said The sculptor was tapping Susie on the arm again
3: He tried once more with Linda Santo, the evil lobbyist Here's the way I see it And this I think you'll appreciate It would be great, at long last, to have a president in the White House whose last name ends with a vowel.
4: We've never had a president whose last name ended with a vowel?
3: Well, I don't count Coolidge.
4: You're from what part of Chicago?
3: Well, just outside Chicago.
4: Where outside? Michigan. Isn't Michigan a long way from Chicago?
3: It is. He could feel the cool air on the skin between his (laughs) socks and his pant cuffs. When he looked at her hands, they seemed frozen into claws.
4: People talk about the rock-solid sweetness of the heartland, but I have to say Chicago seems like a city that has taken too much pride in its own criminal activity. She smiled grimly.
3: I don't think that's true. Or was it? He was trying to give her a chance. What if she was right? Perhaps we have an unfulfilled streak of myth-making. Or perhaps we just don't live as fearfully as people do elsewhere, he said. <laughs> now he was just guessing.
4: You wait, my friend. Ah, uh, there are some diabolical people eyeing that Sears Tower as we speak.
3: Now he was silent.
4: And if you're in it when it happens, which I hope you're not, but if you are, if you are, if you are, if you're eating lunch at the top or having a meeting down below or whatever it is you may be doing, you will be changed because I've been there. I know what it's like to be bombed by terrorists. I was in the Pentagon when they crashed that plane Right down into it, and I'll tell you, I was burned alive, but not dead. I was burned alive. It lit me inside. Because of that, I know more than ever what this country is about, my friend."
3: He saw now that her fingernails really were plastic that the hand really was a dry, frozen claw, that the face that had seemed intriguingly exotic had actually been scarred by fire and only partially repaired. He saw how she was cloaked in a courageous and intense hideosity. The hair was beautiful, but now he imagined it was probably a wig. Pity poured through him. He'd never felt So sorry for someone. How could someone have suffered so much? How could someone have come so close to death, so unfairly, so painfully and heroically, and how could he still want to strangle them? (laughs) You were a lobbyist for the Pentagon, was all he managed to say.
4: Any faux pas, asked Susie in the cab on the way back to the B&B, where warm cookies would await them by their door, tea packets in the bath, their own snore strips on the nightstand.
3: <sighs> <sighs> bo said Bake. bo verboten foes Uttering my very name was like standing on the table and peeing in a wine glass.
4: Uh, what?
3: Oh, please. I'm afraid I spoke about politics. Couldn't control <sighs> myself.
4: "'Brocco is going to win. All will be well, rest assured,' she said as the cab sped along towards Georgetown. The street curbs rusted and rouged with the first fallen leaves. Promise? Promise.
3: He was afraid to say more. He did not know how much time he and Susie might even have left together and an endgame of geriatric speed dating, everyone deaf and looking identical. What? I can't hear you. What? Oh, you again. Didn't I just see you? All taking place amid bankruptcy and war might be the real circle of hell he was destined for. Don't ever leave me, he said.
4: Why on earth would I do that?
3: He paused. I'm putting in a request. Not just for on earth, but even after that.
4: Okay, she said and squeezed his meaty thigh.
3: At least he had once liked to think of it as meaty.
4: (laughs) You're adequate, she said.
3: I'm adequate enough.
4: She held her hand there on his leg.
3: And on top of hers, he placed his. The one with a wedding ring she had given him identical to her own, he willed all his love into the very end of his fingertips, and as his hand clasped hers, he watched the firm, deliberate hydraulics of its knuckles and joints. But she had already turned her head away and was looking out the window steadily, the rest of the ride back, showing him only her beautiful hair. Which was gold and flashing in the passing street lamps as if it were something not attached to her at all
0: (laughs) (laughs) kyle mclaughlin and joan allen performed laurie moore's foes i'm meg wallitzer this story has so many layers Aging, navigating marriage, a huge national event encapsulated in a private moment, personal and professional doubt. One of the perks of my new role as host of Shorts is that I get to entice my fellow writers into my lair. I know that you, the listener, aren't here in my lair with me, but try to imagine four cork-lined walls and many volumes of old books and an antique hourglass and picture me sitting in a big leather wing chair, swirling a brandy snifter. Try to imagine all of that, and then forget about it entirely, because sadly, I've got none of that here. But happily, I do have my friend, the writer Lori Moore, who agreed to stop by to talk about this complex short story of hers, and about writing in general. You know the expression, good writers borrow, great writers steal? Yeah. Do you think when you're starting out, you're more likely to show your influences? Like, you know, uh, borrowing more than stealing when you're a beginning writer? Maybe. Well, you're somebody whose work has been so influential itself, and you can see its echoes in other people's work. Humor is one big aspect, because I know you and we're friends, I know your humor, and I see it in you, I see it on the page. I don't think you ever say, insert joke here, but how does it work? How does the story get funny? Well, you
1: know, you're well, the, I know, but you're the funniest writer on the planet. Thank you. That's, no, no, no. I yeah, you I to differ. You know, it's just a way of looking at the world and you, you get the characters moving around and you start to see things through their eyes and you see funny things. Do you like jokes? I unfortunately like jokes, but I'm moving away from jokes. Oh, really? Do you want to hear a good joke?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. Okay, this is my joke. Okay. Okay, so it was a woman's 100th birthday. And you know, it's funny already. I know, I know. <laughs> and her family all gathered around at the nursing home and they said, Grandma, you're a hundred years old. Is there something you've always wanted to do your whole life and never had a chance to do? And she said, Well, there is one thing. I guess that's my Tevye voice. <laughs> she said, there is one thing. All my life I've wanted to go whitewater rafting on the Colorado River. And they thought, Oh, okay. So they hired a private nurse and they fitted her out with a little helmet and they fitted her up with an IV pole and They had her airlifted from the nursing home and carried across the country and slowly with the nurse lowered onto a raft. And she went whitewater rafting on the Colorado River. It was amazing. And they picked her up afterwards. A year went by and she was still alive. And they all went back to the nursing home and they said, Grandma, you're amazing. You're 101. Is there anything you've always wanted to do your whole life and never had a chance to do? And she said, well, there is one thing. All my life, I've wanted to go whitewater rafting on the Colorado
1: River. (laughs) I could see that line coming. But the
0: thing is, I know, I'm (laughs) sorry, but the thing, what I like about the joke and what I think about it in terms of fiction is all the details were put in there to be taken away at the end, like that magic trick where they pulled. And that's what we don't want in fiction with humor, right? We don't want the details to be taken away as a punchline. We want them to accrue and give us a feeling.
1: Mostly you're not using jokes. And that is the problem with the joke is that it's so constructed to sort of end.
0: It stops the action. It
1: falls off a cliff.
0: Yes, that's right. And I actually want to talk about your story, Foes, which we just heard. It's funny and macabre, and it's filled with dissonance, which I think some of the humor comes from. There's a lot of elements of dissonance. There's money and no money, Republicans and Democrats, glamour and suffering,
1: art and commerce, What was the experience writing that story? I love to write dinner party stories. It's like a play. You know, you push the people together and then tense conversation ensues. I always think that the best dinner party in real life has some tense conversation in it. I mean, at least the most memorable dinner parties. Otherwise, it's a boring dinner party. So I put together a couple of things that I knew from real life. And then also just invented a lot. And then I I had this collision of sensibilities. I wanted the surprise of someone understanding that the person he thinks is the enemy also has all this suffering behind them. And having that come out. Do you think it's a compassionate story? I do. Yeah. I mean, there are no enemies really there. At the time, in 2008, I don't know if you went to any events where there were Republicans and Democrats seated at the same table. But the McCain people did talk like that. They talked like McCain, well, my friend. They kept saying my friend. Oh, the way that McK- came
0: from McCain rhetoric. I did not. Ma-
1: well, McCain was always saying, right. listen, my friend. Do you yeah, remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, no, I do. And so his supporters started to do that, too. They would lecture you with my friend, my friend. So I wanted to get that down. It was an exciting time with Obama running. I can't paint a little bit for Obama. I mean, I did the door-to-door stuff in Indiana and Wisconsin. So I wanted to catch some of that excitement from one particular person's point of view. But, of course, he's a particular down-and-out guy. Whenever I write from a man's point of view, I really make him so down-and-out. And I just love him. <laughs> do you do that on purpose? Or yes, do you realize? I make him so hapless. Because,
0: and you feel sorry for him? I love him. Do you love all your
1: characters? No, no. But usually the main characters you have to really feel intimately with in some way. And I suppose the way I feel intimate with a male character is to make them hapless. I guess it's the part of me. That that, is hapless? That they're borrowing. I have
0: known you a long time and I have not seen that part. Speaking of humor and all kinds of things, I thought today... We could play a little bit of a literary game. And (laughs) I know there are games people and not games people in the world, I have to say. And I don't think you're one of them, but you indulge me as my friend. I was actually going to try to see if there was a way I could do a verbal wordle with you today. And it was going to lead to (laughs) novel and story and image and all Mm -hmm. kinds of literary words. But Mm -hmm. I thought that is really not great for radio. That's kind of like 1930s radio. So instead... I took some titles of famous books, and I sort of paraphrased them. And you have to figure out what they are. And really? Oh, okay. All right. You, all right. No. We'll see if this works. We'll see if this works. Okay. Here's one. A Meal at the House of a Lesser Famous Trump Child. <laughs> <laughs> Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes! <laughs> and you are fantastic. Look, you see?
1: All right, I got it. All right, it. now
0: here, that one, that's amazing. Look, I, I should have even started with something really easy. Like, okay, here's an easy ish one. Well, having said that, you'll sit here in silence, but I know, no, you I didn't, won't. The former raisins of loathing.
1: Grapes of wrath.
0: Yes. Okay. All right, here's a little tricky one. Where the white veil sits, looked at anew. Where does the white veil sit? Where does a
1: white veil sit? Um, On a a head? Yeah, who's head? The bride. Brides had revisited? Yes, that's it. That's it. All right.
0: That was my best one, so you're not looking very impressed. (laughs) I can't believe I spent my time. I should have been writing, but I did. Okay, we have more. All right. Okay, here's one. A kind of whiskey with Yogi Berra in it. Do you know what he...
1: this is getting complicated. No, a kind of whiskey with yogi. This is Be- the
0: lightning round with Yogi Berra. And do you know what he played? Uh, do you know what his position was? He he was a catcher
1: mm. in the Rye. Yes. Okay. A kind of whiskey
0: with <laughs> Yogi right. Berra yes. in it. Catcher okay. in the Rye. Okay. All right. All right. Center of a fictional Meg's family.
1: Center of a fictional Meg's family. Yeah,
0: not me. But a fi- who is Meg in literature? That you read when you were oh, but a girl. Oh,
1: little and little. Yeah. Wounded. So what's their? So, name? so what's the their center. Well, the the center will not. What's
0: hold? her? The fa- <laughs> center. Oh right, it's Joan Didion. No, no. I'm sorry, you <laughs> cannot get. Who's it? the middle girl? Well, what's their last name? What's their family? March. Mm. So what? What? What is the center the, of a fictional Meg's family? So you got half of it. Middle March. That's it. That's a very weird All right. clue. Uh, you know what? <laughs> they don't pay me
1: <laughs> Very complicated much. for this. Okay. Someone else would do better. All right. Here. Okay. I mean, someone else would do better. I have two state. more. I have two more. All right. I'll
0: try. Okay. The essential muscle is a solitary Biden child. The heart is the lonely hunter. <sighs> you are killing it. You are amazing. Okay. Here's the last <laughs> one. This one I'll gently walk you through. A nobleman's title...
1: Of game show host Hall and an artist who wrapped things. Monty Hall. Hmm. Monty... Okay, An artist who raps oh, oh, Cristo, Monte Cristo. Count of Monte Cristo. There
0: you go. Oh,
1: genius. <laughs>
0: we knew you were a genius of fiction, and
1: now we find out you are a genius of this stupid really, game that I made you play. And I, <laughs> you love games, Mike. You're so good. I, I, you're good, too. No, maybe. no, no, I'm
0: not. But the pleasure at getting Wordle, for instance, how does it compare with the pleasure of finishing a story? <laughs>
1: <laughs> with Wordle, you know you're done. With a story, you never never, know. You're you're never quite done.
0: Okay. I wanted to say we both love music Mm -hmm. and we both Mm -hmm. love to sing. Mm -hmm. And this may go nowhere and we'll never Mm -hmm. (laughs) hear the light of day. We may cut this. We may really cut this. But can we sing a little bit of Famous Blue Raincoat by Leonard Cohen,
1: a song we both love? Because the lyrics are so beautiful. It's so beautiful, but it's very melancholy. It's very. Do you want to sing a little of it? Don't you think we should sing something cheerful? Oh yeah, like what? Ave Maria. (laughs) (laughs) What? We'll do the shift, and then I want to to talk to you about that. Yeah. Jane Jane came by with a lock of your hair. She said
0: that you gave it to her that night that you planned to go clear. Did you ever
4: go clear?
1: That might be enough. Then it's perhaps (laughs) more enough. The tomatoes
0: are being thrown and radios and podcast devices. But somehow that
1: is the best part of the song. But why is that? It's kind of a bridge. It shifts keys. And it's like Wesley Morris' definition of a bridge in a song where you suddenly are in a different song. It's a waltz. One right. two three, one yeah. two three. Jane came by with the lock of your hair. It's beautiful, but it's also
0: so beautifully elliptical. The idea of Jane. Jane is suddenly introduced. Suddenly,
1: you're in a different song. You're in a different
0: song, and I'm looking at that for you as a writer of stories and novels. This idea of the introduction of the strange thing and the willingness of the listener with the song or the reader of the story, or sometimes for us, the listener of the story, to accept the new person and just wait patiently for that yeah. person to be revealed. Yeah. But the mystery in songs yeah. is something so beautiful. And in a story, I think if we have all that
1: mystery, people say, what happened? I don't understand it. Well, Alice Monroe is very good at it, So it, maybe it's a Canadian thing. Oh, that's right. <laughs> And Joni Mitchell does a little bit in some of her songs. And John Candy and all those people from (laughs) SCTV. The SCTV people,
0: no, I don't think they were elliptical. But do you think that there's more allowance in a song for mystery than in a story? I mean, are you okay if you read a story and you finish it? Can you ever love it but not really understand it? We've had this
1: conversation before, long, long ago, when we were talking about things you appreciated versus things you loved.
0: And what did we say? What did young Laurie and young Meg say? I said I didn't
1: really feel that you could. You couldn't appreciate something if you didn't also love it. And you thought, no, there could be a divide. But I think you're oh, wait, right. I think different. we're both right. You're saying yeah.
0: you are saying you can't appreciate it if you don't love it. I'm saying can you appreciate it if you don't understand it? it? But you
1: feel it. If you feel it, then you do understand it. But a on feel- a... A feeling is a thought, a- and a thought is a feeling. So if you're feeling it it's but it's it goes done past its work the, oh, it goes yeah. past the
0: gatekeepers of yes, of conscious understanding though
1: right I mean it, yeah it's like it's done its musical feeling thing and gotten I there I think that's
0: always a great exercise I've done it over the years with students have them bring in a song they love and play it for the class and just the opening stirring moments like for me of walk away Renee, we talked about this once oh. from, It may be that with music, you remember where you were when you heard it. So you are reunited with your younger self. And that's true for rereading something, right? When a listener hears a story on our show that they read long ago, I think there's a moment that catches you up. You know, you don't have to have read it. We love introducing new stories to people. and We do that all the time. But just that sense of I remember how I felt when I read this or when I heard this.
1: Right they remember where they were and who they were and what they were going through when they read something or heard something. I don't really have that so much. I'm usually too transported and so I don't So you wake I don't up remember and my don't. surroundings. But I often misremember things. You know, you remember something going a certain way and then you read it again and you go, "What? That, that, I don't remember this part." Or you insist that something is a certain way at a dinner party. Going back to
0: the dinner, you in, you you ruin the
1: dinner party. You no, insist No, you make and it then, you make it good because you brought tension to the dinner party. But
0: then somebody invariably gets out their
1: phone and <laughs> proves you wrong. My
0: husband sometimes says something like if only there were a way to find out if we were right. You know,
1: and of course, Google is just waiting for you to be proven I wrong. I don't have a smartphone, but I do wait for others to get their smartphones out. I, I used to be offended by it because it was like getting fact-checked just talking. Oh, right, like having a New Yorker fact-checker, yeah, like, like sitting like, with like, you. Go away! Don't fact-check everything I say. But now I want everything fact-checked.
0: It's true. Stories versus novels, (laughs) the real shift. I just wanted to ask you, because I think you're finishing a novel, and obviously one works on that for a long period of
1: time. In
0: terms of pleasure, do you have a different kind of experience with one versus the other?
1: Well, it's sort of the obvious difference. I mean, the pleasures of writing a story are over with faster. The pleasure and intimacy that you have with your main character or characters as you go through a novel, that's years. That's a years-long friendship you're having with these... Hapless. Hapless. I do have a hapless guy in my novel. You do? I love him. I'm sensing a theme. He's really, really hapless. I might have made him too hapless, but whatever. Well, But, I, whatever. I, <laughs> well, uh, but at any rate... You have this friendship with people who don't quite exist. Yes. But you're making them exist. And so as far as you're concerned, they exist. And this is your life for years. So that aspect of it is the big difference. And that's a huge difference.
0: And then you hand it off like a relay race to... Readers who have a relationship oh, with, yeah. and they do, but
1: you, you, you never really know. know. You never really you know. Never really know. <laughs> and, they, they're never, and most of them won't have the right same. one they won't or have the same, same one anyway, and you don't know. And the, you, you never know how it's going to be. That's what fiction is all about. I know. I was having this conversation with a 15 year old girl in her backyard in Nashville last week, and she said, If you could have a superpower, what would it be? I said, let me think about that. I, but, but what would yours be? And she said, I would like to read people's minds. And I said, why do you care what people think? Wouldn't you rather fly? And then she thought, "Yeah." I said, "We could just fly around this yard. Wouldn't that be more fun? Who cares what people think?" That's, so that's that's, that's where I am right now as I finish my novel. I just we... want to fly. I don't care what people think.
0: Well, we've brought you a special jetpack today as a <laughs> as a gift for appearing here on our show, Lori Moore. Thank you so much oh, for showing thank up. thank you, Meg. This was fun. That was the author, Lori Moore, reminding us that everyone's stories matter, whether, as in these three tales, they are laid down lightly, fantastically, or like daggers on the table. Daggers on the table. You know, I like that image. Maybe I'll write a story about it. Two women sit across from each other at a table in a restaurant. The daggers lie between them, sharp and yet oddly useless. After all, this place serves only soup. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.